This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on deep vein thrombosis. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. DVT is a relatively common medical problem with a yearly instance of about one in a thousand adults. It can cause acute and long-term problems from pulmonary embolism to bleeding as a result of treatment to post-thrombotic syndrome. So how should we diagnose and manage patients with this condition? To tell us, we have on the line, Professor Scott Waller, who's director of the Thrombosis Clinic at Intermountain Medical Center and professor of medicine at the University of Utah. And importantly, Scott is author of our BMJ best practice topic on this condition. So Scott, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking you to tell us what exactly is deep vein thrombosis? Deep vein thrombosis is actually a a very uh, important uh, diagnosis for physicians to keep in mind uh, when considering uh, patients uh, in in general uh, internal medicine practice. Uh, Classically, we think of deep vein thrombosis as blood clots uh, in the legs, which as you articulated can uh, lead to pulmonary embolism, blood clots in the lungs. But it's important to be mindful that deep vein thrombosis can also occur rarely uh, in the upper extremities, especially with certain risk factors, Um, and uh, why in unusual circulation, such as the splanchnic circulation uh, in the abdomen, and rarely in the cerebral veins. Okay, great. Thank you. And how do you make the diagnosis of DVT? So initially, why a clinical uh, suspicion is important. And uh, patients present with classic symptoms that a, a clinician would wish to consider. Beginning with deep vein thrombosis of the lower extremities, why that could be swelling, uh, especially uh, that is unilateral pain, uh, edema, uh, that is to say uh, where that swelling actually involves um, uh, leading an indentation uh, to the leg upon pressing on the lower extremity. And then of course the the clinical scenario, uh, that is to say the context in which those patients uh, would present is important. It's it's important to acknowledge that risk factors for DVT exist. They can include recent hospitalization, malignancy, paralysis, immobility. And so um, we would want to consider the context in which those patients present. Uh, in addition to the physical exam findings. Okay, thank you. And a clinical risk assessment is important uh, in in that regard, I guess. Tell us, how do you do a clinical risk assessment? Indeed. I would submit to you that uh, the standardized approach to clinical risk assessment among patients suspected of DVT involves using a uh, risk assessment tool. Um, That which is best validated for Deep vein thrombosis is referred to as the WELLS score. Um, There is also a simplified WELLS, and this applying this uh, risk score that takes into account uh, both uh, physical exam findings, but also uh, aspects of the patient history with a score attached to each of those potential risk factors, then permits uh, calculation of a uh, WELLS score. That calculation will lead 
to the patient being considered either low, intermediate, or high risk for thrombosis for the conventional score, or have DVT considered uh, probable or improbable uh, using the uh, simplified score. And so based upon that initial risk assessment, then further uh, action is, uh, is decided. Okay, th thank you. And, and I guess investigations include things like D-dimers and ultrasound. Tell us, tell us more about those, please. Indeed. So when we think about using that clinical risk assessment, that permits you to have a pretest probability or a suspicion of disease. In fact, if that suspicion is high, why then evidence uh, recommends proceeding directly to imaging, and that's ultrasound um, under most circumstances, which we'll talk about momentarily. If that suspicion is low or moderate, then uh, an alternative approach may be utilized. And that alternative approach is to obtain a D-dimer. D-dimer um, is a, a marker of fibrin degradation that circulates in the blood, and uh, the D-dimer level can be obtained uh, very easily with simple venipuncture. Uh, importantly, D-dimer is, is nearly ubiquitously available and highly sensitive for the presence of deep vein thrombosis. As such, if a patient has either a low or an intermediate uh, risk suspicion for deep vein thrombosis and this highly sensitive test, D-dimer, is negative, why then you can clinically refute the diagnosis of DVT um, and uh, proceed uh, uh, considering other diagnoses. Okay, thank you. And, and um, you're, you're going to tell us more about ultrasound as well, but please do expand on that if you can. When we think about imaging for uh, patients that are suspected of having DVT, uh, the principal uh, modality that's used today is ultrasound. And it really comes in two flavors. Um, the uh, more broadly utilized uh, version outside of the United States is two-point ultrasound that looks at um, the popliteal and, and the femoral veins. Uh, whole leg ultrasound is becoming progressively more uh, adopted, uh, however. The difference between the two is the following. If a patient is suspected of having DVT and has a whole leg ultrasound performed, then if that is negative, the diagnosis can be refuted. If the patient has moderate or a high suspicion for DVT and a two-point ultrasound is performed, however, then it is recommended to repeat that ultrasound uh, at least once five to seven days later. And so, um, it's uh, important to be mindful regarding what uh, technique is available to your practice when considering um, how to proceed among patients suspected of having DVT. Okay, thank you. And are there any other common pitfalls in making the diagnosis? Important uh, considerations include uh, the limitations of ultrasound, uh, specifically when considering special populations. Uh, the first that comes to mind is pregnancy, where it's sometimes difficult to get good windows uh, into the uh, especially upper part of the leg. And uh, variably, if the suspicion remains high and ultrasound is negative, then 
alternative modalities, including uh, CT venogram, uh, uh, can be considered uh, to refute the possibility of deep vein thrombosis. And the other uh, piece to highlight, I would suggest with respect to pitfalls, is that should uh, the suspicion for DVT be high and a two-point ultrasound be elected, then, as I mentioned, why it's important to repeat that ultrasound five to seven days later. Okay, thank you. And in terms of differential diagnosis, when I was in training, ruptured Baker cyst was, was something that was mentioned. Uh, tell us about that if you, if you can. Yes, thank you. So um, certainly there are many uh, entities that can cause pain associated um, with the swelling in the leg. The Baker cyst is a pocket of fluid that can uh, accumulate behind uh, the knee. Risk factors for that include advancing age um, and of course trauma. Uh, also uh, patients with uh, surgery and inflammation, osteoarthritis are at risk. Likewise, uh, why a history of trauma to the lower extremity and uh, infection are uh, important considerations. Okay, thank you. Let's move on from diagnosis to management now. Tell us what is the mainstay of management? Well, among patients that have a diagnosis of deep vein thrombosis, anticoagulation remains the cornerstone of treatment. Historically, that has meant uh, initiating uh, anticoagulation with heparin or low molecular weight heparin uh, overlapped with a vitamin K antagonist such as warfarin. And if you were to characterize the stages of treatment of deep vein thrombosis, uh, it could be uh, reflected as follows. First is the acute treatment phase, which historically um, referred to that initial overlap period although uh, today with the direct oral anticoagulants tends to account uh, for a, a period of time when a higher dose of the medication is used. Um, then long-term therapy tends to reflect the treatment period out to approximately three months, which broadly speaking is characterized as the minimal appropriate duration to treat deep vein thrombosis. And then extended therapy is the third phase, uh, which reflects continuing anticoagulation beyond that 12-week initial treatment phase, why uh, largely at that stage in the game for the prevention of recurrent thrombosis. I mentioned the use of heparin or low molecular weight heparin overlapped with uh, warfarin. However, uh, it's also uh, meaningful to acknowledge that uh, over the last decade or so, uh, emerging therapies have included medications that uh, are arguably uh, easier to uh, use, and those are the direct oral anticoagulants. Okay, great. And that moves us smoothly on to, to recent advances. Tell us about the direct oral anticoagulants. Well, the direct oral anticoagulants are classes of medicines that work uniquely at a specific spot in the clotting cascade. Uh, there are, in effect, two uh, families. The first uh, is the uh, oral direct thrombin inhibitor, and uh, that drug is dibigatran. Uh, the second are the oral activated factor 10 inhibitors, and those drugs include uh, rivaroxaban, apixaban, edoxaban, and batrixaban. These medicines have advantages uh, over 
the uh, historical treatment with warfare, uh, which include the following. First, uh, why they uh, are pills and at least the oral 10A inhibitors, in fact, do not uh, routinely require uh, parenteral anticoagulation for initiation. Rather, they are given at a higher dose initially for rivaroxaban and apixaban. Second, they have comparatively fewer drug-drug interactions. Um, third, their dosing is administered based on a fixed dose. That is to say, they don't require routine dose adjustment that so many have familiarity with uh, when it comes to managing warfare. And, and then lastly, uh, why their side effect profile and bleeding risk under most circumstances uh, appears to be perhaps favorable when uh, compared with warfarin therapy. Okay, thank you. Um, and let's move on to pitfalls in management now. What are the common pitfalls in management, can you tell us? I would submit that uh, among the uh, greatest challenges that persist include uh, starting these medications in an optimal fashion. Uh, each was studied using a variable dosing regimen, and so it's important to be mindful that um, the dosing that is elected for a given drug is specific to venous thromboembolism. And most have an indication for uh, atrial fibrillation as well and the prevention of stroke, uh, and that dosing regimen differs. And so I always encourage uh, clinicians to be mindful that venous thromboembolism requires a dosing regimen that differs from simply starting the medications without uh, that initiation uh, acute treatment uh, phase um, that is required in the treatment of venous thromboembolism. Okay, thank you. And, and basically what you're saying there is that you have to, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I know, you, you have to start the heparin before the warfarin or, or before the oral anticoagulant, is that correct? The uh, treatment varies depending upon the anticoagulant that is chosen. So if, for example, heparin or low molecular weight heparin are initiated, why uh, treatment with those medicines must be continued until two standards are met. First, a patient who is initiating warfarin must have parenteral anticoagulation for a minimum duration of five days. And second, why uh, that overlap must continue until the INR, it, which is the uh, lab value uh, representative of the effect of warfarin, is in the treatment range on two consecutive days. This is important because the presence of acute deep vein thrombosis consumes nascent uh, anticoagulant proteins, and likewise unopposed warfarin, paradoxically, acknowledging that it is an anticoagulant, also by its mechanism of action will consume uh, those nascent anticoagulant proteins such as antithrombin protein C and protein S. Should you be initiating a direct oral anticoagulant, then why it's important to be mindful of the dosing that's specific to the treatment of venous thromboembolism, which includes treatment in the acute phase, variably uh, higher dose of uh, the uh, drug being administered during uh, that first period um, before the dosing changes for uh, long-term therapy. In rare circumstance, 
uh, more aggressive treatment for deep vein thrombosis occurs. And this is, as a class, referred to as catheter-directed therapy, often with mechanical or chemical thrombolysis. This is where a catheter is passed into the vein and using varying modalities, uh, why the blood clot is extracted with or without a thrombolytic being uh, dripped in uh, for a period of time. There has historically been great enthusiasm in, in uh, implementing uh, these procedures to dramatically uh, lower the burden of thrombosis, especially among patients with blood clots in the upper part of their leg, in the iliofemoral distribution, um, where catheter-directed therapy may be considered. Alas, um, prospective randomized controlled trials have demonstrated that uh, as a group, it appears that this invasive intervention may not reduce the risk of post-thrombotic syndrome and as uh, meaningfully as we had hoped. Although these uh, procedures among individuals who are willing to accept the risk of bleeding and uh, the expense associated with uh, the procedure, why uh, often have relief uh, sooner than those started on anticoagulation alone. If catheter-directed therapy is administered, uh, it's important to acknowledge that uh, the implementation of anticoagulation, as we discussed, is still indicated, and an appropriate treatment uh, duration of anticoagulation should still be administered. Okay, thank you. Um, thank you for clarifying that. that that's really helpful. Um, let's move on to another subject of, of long-term sequelae and also risk of recurrence. Can, can you tell us, talk about both of those issues? Uh, to your point uh, regarding complications of venous uh, thromboembolism, uh, perhaps uh, the most problematic is post-thrombotic syndrome. Post-thrombotic syndrome uh, can be characterized as why it can be pain, swelling, tenseness, fullness, heaviness of the leg. Uh, it can persist uh, for uh, days, uh, why uh, weeks, months, or even years. We know that individuals that have extensive and especially more proximal DVT, if it involves the iliac veins, appear to be at an increased risk for this complication, as do individuals who are obese and those that have more severe symptoms at the time of their presentation. Uh, the cornerstone of therapy for post-thrombotic syndrome is optimal anticoagulation. Uh, today, why we recommend that patients are active uh, early and often and advance their activity as they tolerate, as we believe this likely aids in the resorption uh, of blood clot. And uh, while historically we have recommended that these individuals all wear compressive stockings, indeed, uh, recent uh, randomized control. Uh, evidence uh, suggests uncertainty that those are necessarily helpful. Uh, importantly, it's unlikely that they would cause harm, and if a patient is struggling, I'll often suggest that they consider a knee-high compressive stocking of around 20 uh, millimeters of mercury compression to see if that helps. Um, alas, uh, the uh, signal that that necessarily uh, improves clinical outcomes of post-thrombotic syndrome is less certain. 
most severe symptoms of post-thrombotic syndrome can include ulceration of the leg um, and wounds that uh, have difficulty healing. Okay, thank you. And inevitably, we have to bring up the subject of, of COVID-19. Tell us about uh, DVT and COVID-19, because there's been a good bit of coverage of this in the literature. Rarely has a, a disease process uh, deep vein thrombosis, venous thromboembolism, been highlighted so remarkably as it is in this era of uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus uh, and the disease, as you described, called COVID-19. As you know, this is an RNA virus that seems to bind preferentially to the uh, angiotensin-converting enzyme 2 receptor affecting uh, primarily alveolar cells, uh, which is uh, what leads to the characteristic viral pneumonia, but it also uh, seems to bind to cells in the cardiomyocytes uh, as well as the vascular endothelium. Um, if we look at uh, patients that have uh, presented with COVID why uh, the rate of venous thromboembolism, including deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism, has been reported as high as 50%. The exact pathophysiology is not entirely elucidated, although these are patients that seem to have uh, a reduction in their platelet counts, um, especially with severe disease. There appears to be activation of uh, neutrophils, of cytokines, of these uh, endothelial uh, cell linings, and a process called uh, netosis, which is uh, where a neutrophil extracellular trap forms inside the vessel, and these activated neutrophils actually, uh, uh, in effect, uh, trap uh, cells that are traveling through the veins and invariably the arteries. Other characteristics of thrombosis and COVID have included a dramatic uh, elevation in the D-dimer that we'd formerly uh, discussed. And while um, the exact optimal treatment for uh, these uh, patients is unclear, I would submit to you that uh, there are a couple of uh, standard messages. First, if a patient is diagnosed with COVID-19 and hospitalized, then optimal uh, chemoprophylaxis against blood clots, uh, administering a, a medicine, why at the time of hospitalization to protect these patients is, is indicated. Second, should a patient develop a venous thromboembolism, a DVT, why uh, current evidence suggests that uh, they be treated analogously uh, to an individual without COVID. And then third, um, I would additionally say that it's important to have a high index of suspicion for the development of deep vein thrombosis among individuals with COVID who perhaps have a less severe course are treated as uh, outpatients uh, and then invited to follow up with their GP. Should they uh, develop signs or symptoms worrisome for thromboembolism, the index of suspicion should be high and these patients should be tested. Okay. Thank you very much, Scott, for that last comprehensive answer. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.